Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, Good morning. How are y'all doing? I, uh, in full disclosure, I woke up and got a bit of a migraine. When I get a migraine, it's not like debilitating the way that migraines are for most people. I get this ocular migraine and kind of an aura. It looks like a kaleidoscope. And then to be honest, I feel a little bit hungover the rest of the day. I try really hard not to preach hungover. And so it's good. That was a bad joke. And you guys laughed anyway. We're going to have a good morning. We're going to have a good morning anyway. Um, All right. Just a couple things by way of announcement. There's some stuff on the calendar. I'm not even sure the stuff I'm going to announce is on the calendar because this can't be calendared. We are going to help out with um, a refugee family through USCRI, I think it is. Elizabeth Stutzman is being the point person for that. And um, we're going to get two weeks' notice to set up an apartment for a family that's coming. Maybe an Afghani family, may not. Just felt like this is what we should do right now. Um, all the stuff is coming from the Green Share Project, or most of it. And so we probably won't have to get a lot of things for the apartment, but we'll need to clean it and set it up. If you're willing to do that, just um, email, let's say, jeff at oakcitychurch.com. I'll forward it to Elizabeth. Um, and it's just going to, we're looking for 10 or 12 volunteers. So, so do that or talk or find Elizabeth after service and do that. That's a big opportunity for us as a church, uh, to be a blessing to some folks that are going through a really hard time. Also, we are, I don't think this made the calendar yet on October 16th, the women are praying and the men are smoking meat and eating it together. And so you'd be the judge whether you'd rather be, no, that, I can't say that because they're praying. And so that's really good. And those events have been really good, but we're at the, at the Pritchett's house going to have a uh, M-E-A-T meet and greet that night and need three guys to smoke some large hunk of meat and we will get together and hang out. I also, um, I sent out an email to um, the, the men's email list and if you didn't get it, let me know and I'll get you on that list. But uh, about a book that came out recently from a guy um, named Ray Ortland who is like a pastor crush of mine. He's now retired, he pastored most recently in Nashville. He wrote a book called The Death of Porn. And it's like a fatherly book. It's six letters, like, like written to his sons. And I'd love to read through it with a, with a handful of guys. And so if you're interested in doing that, um, you know, shoot me a text or send me an email, and uh, we'll, we'll figure out when we're going to do that. But I just, it's something we don't talk about enough um, that every guy struggles with at some level, that some guys are really, it's debilitating. And um, so I would like the opportunity to go through that with some guys, and if this Holy Spirit's convicting you of that, then you were one of those guys. Okay, stand with me for a minute. We're going to read um, the passage for the day. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, and verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched, uh, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they now have announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Um, this, I'm going to go through, we've been going through First Peter, we've been going through it one, two, three, four verses at a time. We're going to cover a whole lot of verses today. I think we have 15 verses that we're covering today. And so it's, this is the very beginning of that. 
in this little bit, there are, you don't get as many yous normally as you get in this passage. And so he is saying, like, the grace um, that, that, that um, was to be yours, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you um, and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and that we know things that angels longed to look into. That should be, like that should give you some pause, that we know things that the prophets were trying to figure out hundreds, thousands of years ago, that angels longed to know, but God has given us the grace and the privilege to know those things. This, these passages, this, this morning is going to be, we're going we're gonna to fly through quite a bit of the story of the Bible and looking at the, the work of God in Christ through history for us. And, um, and I, like the, the longer maybe you've been in church, the easier it is to take for granted what Jesus has done for you. And in this part of First Peter, I think Peter is taking a second to remind us and, and convict us, maybe, of the privilege that we have in the gospel and not to take that for granted. And honestly, it's been hard, like all week, the week before, thinking through this passage, recognizing and feeling guilty about taking the grace of God for granted, and then realizing I can't feel guilty about taking the grace of God for granted because of the grace of God. So it's a little bit of a kung fu here with it in how this passage goes. And I think it's probably going to work on you in the same way that it worked on me. We talk about privilege a lot in our culture now. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm a little bit hesitant to even say the word privilege because your mind probably goes in a million different directions. My mind is probably not going in the same direction because I have no idea where your mind is going. For me, though, the last few years, I've had several conversations um, with friends that are African-American about about this topic and about privilege and about things, things like this. When my kids got their driver's license at 16, I have two boys that have driver's license now, I never had to have a conversation with them about what to do if you get stopped by the police. And my friends have told me that they have to have that conversation and they'll you know, teach them, like, keep your eyes straight ahead, keep your hands on the steering wheel, um, you know, just be very respectful. No one had that conversation with me. The first time I got pulled over was a few weeks after I got my driver's license. I grew up in a small town, kind of in the country. I was very polite as a teenager. I wanted to be polite to police. So I got out of my car and went back to the police car. That was the wrong thing to do. He got out very quickly. He's like, hey, get back in your car, man. I'm like, okay, where are you? <laughs> you know, um, we just weren't taught that. I have other friends, these knuckleheads on the soccer team, that one of them got pulled over and as the police officers were talking to him, the guy from the back seat reached around and started messing with them while the police officer was talking to him. We just weren't taught that stuff because we didn't have to be taught that stuff. And there is an, a sense of privilege with that. There was a young woman I heard a few years ago talking about how she interned for the same company for three summers in a row in college. The first year, she straightened her hair every single day. The second year, she straightened her hair about half the days. And the third year, she just went with her hair natural. I never, I never, the thought never crossed my mind that that is a thought that crosses someone's mind. Um, we have a good friend, uh, John Fouché and I do, through our pastor's cohort, Dwayne Bond, who's a 50-something-year-old African-American pastor in Charlotte. He has a Ph.D. from Liberty 
He is one of the most, like, I respect this guy as much as anybody, just the way he lives his life and carries himself. Um, has a PhD, teaches counseling classes, has a counseling practice, pastors a church, and does a handful of other things. He's on the national board for Acts 29. He said he will get into an elevator, and he is a, he's, a, he's probably six-something, um, in, in an impeccable dresser, but he said he'll get in an elevator, and if he has a certain age white woman in the elevator, inevitably they will go to the side and clutch their purses. Like, there's just things that, that I don't have to deal with that they have to deal with. And there is an aspect of privilege in that. And we, we all know that. I think Paul is saying like there are things that we take for granted about the gospel that we ought not take for granted. And so he's going to give us in this passage four pictures um, from God's work leading up to our time but four pictures of the privilege we have and and what we take for granted it's slavery to freedom from going from being slaves to being free from sin from being alienated from God to reconciled to God from being guilty to innocent and from being exiled to being on your way home so this first one uh, we've been rescued from slavery to sin and this is uh, verse 13 in first peter chapter one therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ this verse in another translation reads like this in a more literal translation therefore gird up the loins of your mind gird up the loins of your mind be sober rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ gird up the loins of your mind you hear that language gird up your loins before you only hear that in the bible right no one talks about girding up your loins it's because we don't all walk around in robes anymore if you walked in a robe you would have to gird up your loins if you wanted to like go chase your dog down the street and you had a robe on you should gird up your loins with your robe this is i found a picture do we have a picture of what it means to actually gird up your loins uh this is from the art of manliness this is a great site and so you would pull the robe up in front of you or you, 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 you bundle it up and then wrap it around back and then tie it. And so if you ever need to gird up your loins, this is what you need to do. But the deal is that you need to be ready to go and you're not ready to go. You can't run around in a robe. And so you need to gird up loins to get ready to go. The context is the Old Testament story of the Passover. So this is the passage from Exodus chapter 12. You shall eat it. It is the Passover meal that God prescribes for them in this manner with your loins girded. Your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. I'll strike down the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So this is what, what Peter is leaning back on. Um, Israel starts with Abraham. God says, I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a land. All the families of this will be blessed through you. Uh, he has Isaac, has Jacob and Esau, has a bunch of kids, and then they end up in Egypt. And at first it goes well in Egypt, and then it goes poorly in Egypt, and they end up slaves. For hundreds of years, they're slaves to the pharaohs of Egypt. And they cry out to God, rescue us, do something, God. And God does something. Says to Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. And so Moses does that. Pharaoh says, not going to happen. And then the ten plagues start. And, and, you know, those go back and forth. Sometimes he says, no, that's not good enough. Other times he says, I'll let him go, and then he changes his mind, and then he gets to the 10th plague, and the 10th plague is going to be that God sends the angel of death throughout Egypt 
um, he is going to, to kill the firstborn of all their kids. And he tells the Israelites, the way for you to escape this is to take a, a lamb that becomes known as the Passover lamb, and you will sacrifice that lamb. It will be a year-old male lamb without blemish. It is a picture of Jesus. You will kill it. You will not break any bones when you kill it. You'll take the blood of that lamb and wipe it on the lintels of your doorpost. And when the angel of death sees the blood of the lamb on the lintels of your doorpost, he will pass over your house. And he prescribes a meal to be eaten at the same time called the Passover meal. And it's unleavened bread because they got to be ready to go and all this stuff. And so he tells them, have your loins. You eat that meal with your loins girded, ready to go, because this is your chance to escape the slavery of the Egyptians. How do you think they responded to that command? Did you think they girded up their loins? Yes, they girded up their loins because this is their one chance to, to escape the slavery of the Pharaoh. And so they girded their loins up, they packed up their stuff, and they got out of Dodge. The metaphor, biblically, is that we, they escaped their slavery from Egypt. In a minute, he's going to call that the Iron Furnace. In another passage, Jeremiah is going to call it the Iron Furnace. We escape our slavery to sin. In Romans, Paul says, you are, you are slaves to sin. You cannot help but sin. You are dead in your trespasses and your sins. And we have escaped our own Egypt, our slavery to sin, and we're headed to the promised land of redemption. Are we as excited about escaping our sin as the Israelites were about escaping Egypt? What do you think? Probably not. Probably not. I'm not sure we can get it. It's so visceral, but, but maybe. Um, maybe when you were, maybe if you remember your salvation, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you remember it. But that's where gird up your loins comes from. Now, Peter says gird up the loins of your mind because you don't have to move the way they got to move. Um, but we're in a different, we're a part of a different kingdom. Paul says this, that we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's girding up the loins of your mind. The rest of that verse, um, be sober-minded, you know, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus. Fix your hope completely. That's hard, you know. And when I was a new Christian, and if you were in Christ, when you were a new Christian, you probably felt this more acutely. You know, you probably felt the consequences of some sins and some guilt that led you to Christ that you felt more acutely. And even the Israelites, they were out in the desert a few weeks, and they're like, man, Egypt wasn't so bad compared to this desert, you know. And some days, that's what it's like, what it feels like to follow Jesus is it's hard. And you think maybe I was better off. And so it's natural for that, but Paul doesn't want us to take that for granted. So that's the first picture from slavery to freedom. The second one is from being alienated from God to reconciled to God. And so we are in a covenant relationship with God. This is how this passage um, goes on. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it's written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Now, this language, you shall be holy as I am holy, is repeated a couple of times in the Old Testament. One of them is Leviticus chapter 11, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord 
who brought you up out from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And Peter is recalling that language when he's talking to these new Christians in the northern part of what's now Turkey. Now in the Old Testament story, they escape from the Pharaoh, they cross the Red Sea, they get out into the desert. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments, but not just the Ten Commandments, he gets the rest of the law. And the law is God saying to them, here's what you should be like. Here's what the kingdom of Israel should be like collectively, what you should be like individually. Here's what holiness looks like, being set apart uh, for the Lord. And what they do is enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord on that mountain. Jeremiah, in hindsight, says this, You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who doesn't hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace. Remember how bad Egypt was, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers, giving them a land flowing with milk and honey as to this day. It was like a wedding ceremony where you're making vows and um, the people of Israel are saying, all that you um, have, have said, like we will do, we are going to obey the law. And God says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will take you into a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's a covenant relationship that they get into. Um, they spend, I think it's like some 700 years trying to obey the law, trying to uphand, uphold the en their end of the bargain and, and failing at it massively like immediately failing at upholding the law it's disheartening to read it it had to be incredibly disheartening to live it but we all we all kind of know that you know and god knew they couldn't do it god knows you can't do it but it's preparation for jesus um, it's all god's work to get us ready for the gospel paul says that the law was a tutor that was going to lead us to christ uh it was through trying to be really good to obey the law that they realized their inability to be really good to obey the law. Paul gets to a point in Romans where he says, the thing that I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. And then says, ready for the gospel. Thanks be to God. Um, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law is preparation for the gospel. C.S. Lewis said, no one knows how bad they are until they try really hard to be good. And so we have gone from that old covenant in the gospel to a new covenant. Um, Jeremiah goes on to say this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Peter's saying we have the privilege of living that out and being in a new covenant, a different covenant with God. Their relationship with God 
was based on their effort to obey God's laws. Your relationship with God is not based on your effort to, be, to, to obey God's law. Your relationship with God is based on Christ's effort to do something for you that you could never do for yourself. And that there is a privilege in that. He fulfilled the law by living um, as a man in the flesh, living out the law perfectly. He fulfilled it, and then he was able to pay the consequences for my inability and your inability to be holy as God is holy. And then he gives us the same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead to make us holy. Uh, Paul says to the Philippians, now we don't have a righteousness of, of our own that comes from the law, but we have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Our righteousness is something that he has given us, and so we're righteous before God. One pastor has said that religion is, I obey, therefore God accepts me. And I think you could say this about every other religion. There's another C.S. Lewis line where he went into a seminar on comparative religion, and they, asked, they were debating what the difference is between Christianity and every other religion. And he just walked in, they asked him, he was like, oh, that's easy, it's grace, and walked out of the room, and he had it right. Like, that's it. That's it. Um, so religion is that. I obey, therefore God has to accept me because I did what my part of the covenant said I should do. And I think most people live like that and justified that we've obeyed. But the gospel is that he's accepted us in Christ in spite of our inability to obey. Therefore, we're loved. And we seek to obey because we're loved. The church is in this covenant relationship with God. We are his people. We are his bride. And he is our God. We are his people. And he is our God. And that should wash over you in some place in your soul. Not based on anything that you did for him. But based on what he has done for you. Here's the third picture from guilty to innocent. He says you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. So he goes on uh, and says, If you then call on him as father who judges impartially according to each, one deed, each one's deeds. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Um, so the, the, in a covenant relationship, like that covenant with God, it was if you don't, and there's a great picture of this, and I think it's Genesis 14, where God appears to Abraham, and he has this vision, and he, he's talking about his covenant with Abraham, and has Abraham, before the vision happens, take these animals and cut them in half and, like, split them. And this is how ancient covenants were made. And it was a way of saying, if you break your end of the covenant, um, you will be like these animals, and you'll die. And the beauty of the gospel is that we broke our part of the deal, and he suffered the consequences for us. He's the one that died by putting Christ on the cross in our place. And that's how we are in a covenant relationship with him. Sin always leads to death. God is smarter than us. God made us. God knows how we are made to work. And, um, and I just, so I just sent a kid off to college, and my, my abiding prayer is that he would believe that Jesus is smarter than he is, like that he would get that. And so sin, like, gets all, like it gets all this baggage to it because we put it on it, but, like, it's, 
It's just not trusting that he's smarter than us, and so living in a way that's different than he wants us to, and sometimes volitionally, and some, sometimes because we just can't help it. And, um, and so it's going to lead to death, and it's going to lead to physical death, it's going to lead to emotional death, to relational death, above all, spiritual death. And these folks that Peter is writing to knew that. They're in the east. They've got temples to Roman gods, to Greek gods, all over the place. They would make sacrifices to those gods all the time. I was, I've been in the east a few times. I went to Cambodia a few years ago, and they've got every business has this little like box out in a house has this little box it looks like a little diorama that you did when you were a kid in school and uh but they'd have these little things and they'd put bananas or incense into it every day and it's to ward off the evil spirits it's a sacrifice to the spirits like they knew this the jewish people knew this that passover lamb um, the blood of which went on the lintels of their doorposts died in their place they knew it the old testament sacrificial system mandated all these sacrifices for their sins. And so it was visceral to them, the sacrificial system. Um, but it wasn't enough. The writer of Hebrews says, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Can never do it. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But then... Um, he goes on and says, and every priest, every Old Testament Jewish priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That verse is a spectacular verse. <laughs> For a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That doesn't even make sense. We are perfected in Christ because of what he's done for us, and we're being perfected. We're being sanctified. We're being made like him. It's like a, a mystery of the gospel. Sin has consequences, um, and, and he, has, um, he has taken us from guilty to innocent. I think we get numb to the consequences of sin uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was on the sidelines of a game. I'm frequently on the sidelines of a game. Uh, because I, so I've been playing competitively now. My kids are playing all the time. You know, we watch a bit of soccer. And referees are not great at their jobs, right? Can you get an amen to that? Listen, most of you are NC State fans, so let's not kid ourselves here. You guys have a really weird relationships with referees all over the world. It's not healthy. I came down here 25 years ago, had to pick a team, pick State. I'm glad I picked State. On paper, bad decision. On paper, I could have some national championships going a different direction, but I'm still glad I chose State. But the refs are not all out to get you, okay? It's not some grand conspiracy, but that's kind of how it gets played out. Uh, I, the older I get, and the more I watch these refs, like the, I think the less patient I am with them. And so I was thinking about like how, how much it affects you depending on like your relationship with the people that are in the game. So if you're playing the game and the ref makes a bad call, you want justice, right? You feel that more acutely because you, you've, you, like you've got a lot invested in the game. If it's your team and the ref makes a bad call, um, depending on how invested you are in your team, you feel that 
If your kids are playing in the game, you probably really feel that. But it's different, like if the call goes against the team you don't like or the team that you're playing against, you don't feel that injustice as much, do you? You're like, well, hey, refs are human. You know, we've gotten some bad calls against us too. What comes around goes around, it's okay. If you aren't invested in either team and you're watching people get really worked up about the refs, you're like, man, what's wrong with these people that they go so crazy about this stuff? They should get a hobby. Um, if you know the ref, right? So my kids ref. And so if you know the ref, you're really sympathetic towards the ref. Dan Fitzgerald used to ref really high-level competitive soccer games. Like, I would tune in and watch soccer games just to watch Dan ref. It's the only time and everyone's like, good call, ref, you know, uh, because that's how you feel. And then you're like, hey, get off Dan's back because he's pretty good for a ref. You end up being sympathetic to the center if you're close to the center, right? And if you are the ref and you know bad calls are made, you're like, hey, yeah, I had a bad game. I'll have a better game next time. No one's perfect. Compare that, compare referees to sinners. <laughs> uh, if someone sins against you or your loved one, you feel that, right? And you long for justice. And sin becomes something uh, that needs atonement because the consequences of that sin have, have come to you. And it scales based on how bad the call was or how big the game was. Um, a, a week ago, Saturday, we went and watched Michael play in Charlotte. And it was 0-0 game late in the second half. The ref made a bad call that ended up in a penalty kick, and they lost the game one and up. And, and so we were, I was mad at the ref. One guy I thought might, go, actually, I think he did chase the ref to his car afterwards, which is a no-no now because there's ref rage. And it's, I wouldn't, I'm not even sure I'd want to be a ref. Um, but, but you feel that. Man, someone sins against you, you know, uh, Someone cuts you off in traffic, that's one thing. A drunk driver kills a loved one, that's another thing. But it's all, it's all sin. Um, someone can sin against somebody you really don't like. And be honest, you might just be happy about it. You might feel the consequences of that sin in the opposite direction. If you aren't invested in the consequences of sin, you're usually forgiving because you know it just, could as, it just as easily could have been you that was doing the sinning in that case, and no one's perfect. And I think that's like, in some ways, good and graciously, but in some ways, like, just in denial of sin, the mood of our culture right now. If you know the sinner, but you don't know the one that's being sinned against, then you tend to minimize the pain caused, and you cut the sinner some slack. You know what I mean? A couple years ago, um, one of my neighbors, uh, it was a couple, couple guys on my cul-de-sac that I was pretty good friends with, and one of them we just hadn't seen for a few weeks. So I saw my other neighbor. I'm like, hey, have you seen him? Like, what's up? He's like, man, I haven't heard anything from him in a couple weeks. So I Googled him. He was on mugshots. He had committed statutory rape. My, at the time, six, seven-year-old daughter spent time at his house and I didn't know what statutory rape was. I quickly found out what it was <laughs> because I was freaking out. Now what happened is that he had had an indiscretion with his wife's stepsister. This is pretty bad. I am his friend. He was in jail. 
not many people can get into jail, but this is one of the fringe benefits of being a pastor. You have a get into jail card that works at any time. You can get to the hospital or jail pretty much any time you want to. So if you ever wanted to do that, let's talk. You go into ministry and they'll let you in. And so I went and ministered to him for weeks, for months. Um, and, and like coached him into owning everything that he'd done. But I, and there's circumstances in every situation. And, and I didn't know the, um, the other person involved. And so, like, I almost had to ward off sympathy, too much sympathy, for what was going on. Like, that's how we get with sin. You are the sinner, and you cut yourself all sorts of slack because you're only human, and this is the spirit of our age. It's just not fair to expect us to be perfect. Well, that's, it's a good thing God sent Jesus then, <laughs> you know? But we don't want to admit we need to be perfect. That sin has consequences. You look at God, his perspective, on all those referees and all those sins. Those bad calls always affect someone negatively. And God loves everyone equally, so it always affects him. He loves the ref. He loves the players. He loves the parents. He feels it all, and he's committed to justice. But justice always costs something. And so we were ransomed by the blood of Jesus, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Even that, like he's cutting us some slack. The feudal ways, you inherited them. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but the precious blood of Jesus like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Is the blood of Christ precious to us? Again, this is a hard question to ask because it makes me feel guilty, but then we can't feel guilty because the blood of Christ like took away our guilt and our shame. And so he doesn't want us to feel guilty in this moment but maybe to long for it. Precious isn't a word we use, right? What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say precious? Lord of the Rings. It's Gollum. It's that crazy little guy in the Lord of the Rings and their stupid ring, right? But he would go, he went, he did, his whole life was turned upside down because that ring was so precious to him. If you have kids, your kids are precious to you. If you're, if you're married, your spouse is precious to you. You know, I'm really honest. I have a football signed by Brett Favre and Bart Starr. It's a little bit precious, but it's not a big deal, you know. I think about the end of, you remember the end of Saving Private Ryan? You know, like everybody's seen that movie. Where he's standing in front of Private Ryan's grave saying, I hope I lived a life that was worthy of the sacrifice that you made. That was a moment of being precious. That language for Peter to drop that on us, the precious blood of Jesus. The last picture um, is from being in exile, away from your homeland to on your journey home. And so this is the last part of this little passage. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah um, chapter 40 and 
Um, this is what, verses 7 and 8. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the, like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it's significant that it's from Isaiah. So Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is a really long book of the Bible, like 60-some chapters, I think. And, um, and Isaiah is a prophet, and he starts writing before they go into exile, and he's telling them, like, you guys are about to get it. It's been hundreds of years, and God's been patient with you, but he told you he's going to send you to a foreign land, and he's going to because, like, it's time. And, um, and so for the first 39 chapters, he's talking about that. Verse, or chapter 40, excuse me, is where everything changes. Like they think that either Isaiah was writing prophetically um, for stuff that he wasn't going to live out, or it's the disciples of Isaiah that wrote the second part of the, the, um, the book of Isaiah. Because 40 starts this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry for her, that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so it turns from like, from moving to exile to coming out of exile. The next verse in it is a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Does that sound familiar? So that's John the Baptist. When he's announcing the ministry and the divinity of Jesus, he's quoting from Isaiah 40. This is right after that. It's right after that. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. And what Peter is doing is saying, like, your exile is, you're no longer alienated from God. You're reconciled to God. You're no longer guilty. You're innocent. You're not in a foreign land, but you are on your way home. You're on your way home. And this chapter 1 ends, um, this is the good news that was, this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word that is imperishable is the good news that was preached to you. Now, in this, in this letter, um, Ken preaches from now and again, and he's really good about like recognizing when things are indicatives, here's who you are, and imperatives, here's what you have to do. The imperatives are about to flow. Even in this passage, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully in the grace of God to be revealed to you. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Be holy in all your conduct. Conduct yourselves with fear. Love one another earnestly. Like, they're all coming. In, in the rest of Peter, he gets into some really practical things about what it means, who you are, what that means to how you live your life. But here, he's telling us, here's who you are. You've been rescued from slavery to sin, from the iron furnace in which you were trapped. Be grateful for that. You are in a covenant relationship with God where he is your God and you are his people and he is going to make you holy. Be grateful for that. You have been redeemed from the consequences of your sins by the precious blood of Jesus. Be grateful for that. And your spiritual exile is over and your journey home has begun. And be grateful for that. Home for me is a little town in Heartland, or in Wisconsin called Heartland. Um, I have, I've said this before, I have a strange affection for Wisconsin and for Heartland in particular. Like, I have a strange affection for cows because there's so many of them in Wisconsin and it's like a quaint thing for me. Um, I, I can go there and it's therapeutic. And I've got great memories from Heartland. I have horrible memories from Heartland. But there's something, I don't think I long for Heartland at all. I think we long for home. Uh, 
in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And what we long for is the place where things are the way things are supposed to be. As much as we want to deny the consequences of sin and justify ourselves and say no one's perfect, we so want everyone to be perfect. It may be one of the biggest evidences of the reality of God is that we dream of this place that we've never tasted, but we know it's for us. And he's affirming that longing for home. In Christ, we are on our way home. We have an inheritance that is imperishable. It is unfading. It is undefiled. Are you grateful for that? We're going to end um, uh, this sermon, and, and Megan come, come back up by taking communion as a way of remembering uh, what Christ has done for us. And so you have one of these in front of you, and you can um, rip off the clear plastic part. This is the body of Christ that was broken for us. So we do this in remembrance of Jesus. If you tear off the the top to the cup, this is the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We do this in remembrance of Jesus. Father, I've been convicted all week um, that the blood of Jesus isn't as precious to me as it ought to be. And I am grateful this morning uh, that you have died even for that sin, Lord. Thank you that you have perfected for all time um, we who are being sanctified, that we are in process, that your patience knows no end, uh, that you have promised to complete the good work in us that you have begun, Lord, that we can look forward to home. And God, may we rest in your goodness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.